Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. But just as their sufferings were beyond what human nature could bear, so also was their support from those strong consolations of God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're going back to the late 1600s to listen to a sermon by Ezekiel Hopkins. Troy, we got some uh, podcast reviews to share, right, Troy? Okay, so some reviews. Uh, I just pulled from a couple different places really fast here, but on Apple Podcasts, Pat 1689. I don't think that's his birth year. I think that's he's representing the Confession and Creed stuff. Uh, uh, Revive Thoughts. He says, I really enjoy this po- podcast, uh, which I've listened to for at least a year. They discuss sometimes obscure Jesus followers, which often are overlooked in many Christian history books. Hearing the actual sermons read is especially appreciated. That was on Apple Podcasts. We always appreciate five-star reviews there. We currently somehow, by the grace of God, still have a perfect 5.0 rating over there which is mind-blowing it never happens to have 170 plus reviews and still have a 5.0 on youtube we had this comment uh really enjoyed the conversation please continue to do sermons from flawed men it'd be incredible if men could mirror their ideals in their daily lives but it's not the case we cannot ignore great teachers because they were not perfect christians i agree with that sentiment and if you are listening on youtube please feel free to leave us a comment and lastly we got an email from i think his name is i think it's jose it's j-o-s who says, love your work, guys. Keep it up. It helps me get through work some days. Much appreciated. Godspeed, my brothers. I thought that was really kind. I I also enjoy listening to podcasts at work. So knowing that we're brightening your day at work really uh, was uh, was encouraging to me. We also have some Patreons to shout out. Uh, we're very thankful for our Patreons. They're people that allow us to keep making this show. Uh, recently, we have Catherine S., uh, someone called AB, uh, Eden T., or three that recently joined our Patreon team. Uh, thank you so much. And if you would like to give financially to the Revive Thoughts Network, uh, being a Patreon is a great way to do that. You can also go to our shop. We have some new designs up that are pretty cool. I, I really got to say, I think they're some of the coolest. I will, I will put it out there. Coolest podcast designs for some t-shirts you're going to find anywhere. If you don't believe me, go check out our shop and see if we're, see if we're right or not revivedodds.com you can find the shop tab there if you'd like to uh, represent the community with some merch ezekiel hopkins yes this was an individual that uh was active during the active uniformity that took place in england um, and this was a rule that the king put in place saying that you had to fall in line with the the king's way of doing church or you were going to get persecuted. A lot of our speakers that we cover on this show uh, take place during the same era. Many of them 
were rebellious and opposed this and had to do church out in the woods, you know, in, in barns or in fields in the middle of the night because they weren't allowed to conduct church in their uh, in their churches, in their towns. Ezekiel Hopkins has a little bit of a different uh, approach here. He actually was on the king's side during this whole ordeal, uh, a controversial take, to say the least. We're going to get into it here. I found I found it fascinating to, to see kind of both sides of history here. Um, did he fall on the right side of history? Maybe we can chat about it at the end of this uh, at the end of this discussion here. But uh, he was born in 1633. We think we're not sure of his exact birth date. No one's exactly sure of his exact birth date, but we're pretty sure it's probably 1633. He went to college, and after college, he decided he was going to go to Oxford and and learn a lot. From the year 1648 to the year 1653, he attended Oxford, and one of the things that he loved to do was participate in choirs and music. He was a vocalist that uh, was known for being quite a... Uh, uh, he had a beautiful voice and was the talk of the town in the Oxford Choir back then. He lived in England during a very wild century, as Joel kind of hinted at a little bit earlier. In his lifetime, he'd see the English Civil War. He'd see kings dethroned. He More than once... The Black Plague would show up in London. Multiple naval wars are happening uh, between England and the Dutch and France and all these exciting events. Now, many of you, however, know about these events because you listened to our deep dive on the Great Fire of London in 1666, which I also talked about earlier. We know that many of you enjoy this because we heard from some of you who said you did. Here was a quick, uh, when I went and looked, saw, hey, is anybody quick reviews I can find here. I have Phil Yonda on Twitter who said, hey, finally listen to this. I know I could have sooner as a Revive Thoughts Patreon member, but I did listen to it, checked it out. Definitely check this episode out, y'all. Really fascinating, all that was going on around that time at the fire, London Fire 1666, and love the nod at, to the Baptist at the end, which was followed up by another listener who said, I totally agree. It was very fascinating. Love the concluding message. So if you're curious about this era, we have many episodes on people from it. John Flavel and John Bunyan are two people who did the, hey, we didn't want to go with the Church of England side of it. And they have a really interesting story to tell. But if you're interested in more of like, what was it like to be alive in England? If you were to be alive in that era from like 1630 to 1690, uh, go listen to that episode. All of these effects and events matter. And I didn't want to go through every single one of those things again because we just did a big episode on it. But they were affecting Hopkins's life. For example, while Cromwell was in charge before the king came back, uh, Hopkins lived in London. And he actually became pretty famous, pretty important. And he even married a kind of a woman in the higher aristocracy, kind of moving his way up during that time. But unfortunately, it did not last very long. Disease took his wife um, before they were able to, to settle into their marriage. Years later, Hopkins did marry another woman, uh, another woman that was, again, well-regarded uh, in the aristocracy. Actually, it was a woman that was a direct relative of John Smith. The same John Smith of Pocahontas fame um, was Ezekiel Hopkins' wa uh, wife, yeah, a, a relative of his. They had children that, that went on to do pretty well for themselves. Two of them became published poets. So you can kind of see, again, if he's, if he's a, a choir uh, singer, you know, his kids are poets, you can tell that there was a lot, of, a lot of creativity, a lot of artisticness in that household. 
1662, the Act of Uniformity that I mentioned earlier was passed, and the Puritans were told that they had to get on board with what the Church of England was doing, or they would get thrown in jail. Hopkins uh, chose to side with the king in this matter, along with the the uh, uniformity law. And again, this is kind of a controversial take from, from a lot of the people that we cover on here that were opposing this and got persecuted and thrown in prison for this. Uh, Hopkins, you know, took the approach of one of submitting to authority. He didn't see anything that directly opposed his faith in Christ in it. And so uh, he thought it was the best choice to make and still practice his, his faith and still preach the gospel. Soon, again, there's a civil war going on right now, so soon he was taken to Ireland where he served as a chaplain to different forces, and uh, he was really well-loved. Even though he was often critical of his supervisor's actions, his preaching was considered good enough that uh, a lot of his behavior was overlooked in these things. After serving in Ireland for 10 years, he eventually made it to the second largest city in Ireland, Londonderry or Derry, and preached at famous chapels and cathedrals. Many people turned to Christ and loved to hear him preach. He was an important member of society over there and uh, as, a, as a pastor, important uh, influential person over the church at the time. However, being an English minister over in Ireland was not an easy task. Ireland is a Catholic country. The English are not exactly welcome. In our London Fire episode, we talked about how James II took over the throne and who was a Catholic. He was kind of bent on bringing England back to Catholicism. But he had a lot of trouble in Ireland, which you wouldn't think he would, because the Irish, even though they were Catholic too, didn't want an English ruling over them. And every time James kind of tried to work with the Irish, the people in England said, see, you're a Catholic working with the Catholics. We don't want anything to do with you. And this made everyone frustrated. Now, what this has to do with Hopkins was he was summoned actually to a special parliament, like a special meeting of the leaders of England and Ireland with some of the people there to try to figure out how they could kind of bring down the tensions. And Hopkins was seen as an important enough member of the society that you wanted, even though he was a minister, you wanted him to be a part of it. However, the parliament did end up failing and they did not get where they needed to go. There's so many layers. And so it's almost difficult to tell the story because there's so much stuff that's just old to us. There's old family names, honors, like all that kind of European stuff that to me, and maybe just being raised in America, my brain starts to turn off and it's like, this is the you know family crest of this and that. And it just, it's very unfamiliar to me. That's kind of what's going on here. There's wars happening that's difficult to explain. But during this time, there's a siege in this part of the country. This city that he is in is under siege. This is a part of what's called the Williamite War in Ireland. And that was a part of what was called the Nine Years War, where England, the Holy Roman Empire, the Dutch, Spain, all went to war with France. And France basically pushed the Irish Catholics to fight the English. Now, if you're getting lost, you don't need to, really. I will say it was interesting. I hadn't really studied this war before. Apparently, some people, like historians, will say this war, the Nine Years' War, should be considered the first real world war where the entire war went to world or world went to war because there were battles in India, North America, and Africa, and of course, Europe as well, all from these different sides, these different colonial powers uh, getting engaged in these battles. I didn't know about that. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Yeah, so in the Irish part of this war, uh, King James had sent forces to secure Derry uh, from a, a rival army that was going on. And the people in the town uh, did not want this to happen. And so there was a group of these 12 apprentices that didn't wish their, their city to be taken. And so they locked the gates and they hid the key. Uh, Hopkins had advised against this, told them not not to do this. Uh, but they did it anyway, and it ended up causing a lot of uh, awkwardness because the army that was on its way was was uh, was delayed and wasn't able to get there very quick. Six months. It took them six months for the uh, sieging army to arrive at the city gates. Uh, and so they kind of uh, trapped themselves before the, the army was ever even able to get there. And then after the army got there, uh, it was not a very good sieging army. There's only 1,200 soldiers and so the siege itself failed. Um, kind of an awkward, comical bit of a reality there. You know, like these things are happening all the time in this day and age. It doesn't make for a good movie. It doesn't make for a good story. But sometimes <laughs> the reality is you spend like half a year uh, being really passionate about stuff that doesn't really matter at all in the end type of thing. And that's, that's, that's just life. Uh, this would this does not make a good Hollywood movie, but this makes a really good like you know panic where everyone thought, oh no, you know it's almost like uh, the murder hornets of 2020 where everyone thought that was going to be a really big deal and it turned out to be not not that big a deal. That's kind of what this siege was like. Oh no, we're risking our lives, and it turned out uh, not nah, didn't really there really wasn't a whole lot going on. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Hopkins wasn't alone in this. A lot of people thought it was a bad idea, and it ended up proving to be a bad idea. But uh, Hopkins was under a lot of criticism for the way that he sided with the king in this uh, Uniformity Act, so much so that uh, he was kind of pushed out of his position, pushed out of his ministry. He had to go back to London, and there he would uh, attempt to preach again back and forth, but he, he talks about how it he no longer had the stomach for public speaking. It, it really wore him out. He's older in this point of life. You know, he's he's nearing the end of his life. Um, and he just never quite completely recovered from it. He fully resigned about eight months after that. And then he would soon die after that as well. By all accounts, you know, his, his loved ones, his friends, his family say that he died a faithful and peaceful servant of Christ. And this was in the year uh, 1690 that he ended up passing away. Troy, I'm curious about your take on Ezekiel Hopkins as a person, you know, his personality here. Yeah. We talk about these people that rebelled against the Uniformity Act. And uh, I don't get the sense that John Hopkins, oh, John Hopkins, Ezekiel Hopkins, uh, was someone that was okay with sacrificing the gospel, okay with sacrificing uh, the the truth of the scriptures, but rather he thought it was the best way that he thought he was going to be able to be effective to the largest amount of people 
was was to keep himself available in in a minister capacity. Yeah, but in the end, that, you know, it doesn't seem to have, have served him very well. It's interesting. That's almost exactly how I would describe it, like Ezekiel's life, Joel. That, and this actually ties really into next week's episode, too. So if you're listening and you're like, man, this is kind of an interesting debate. Well, I think you'll find that the person we cover next week actually has a very similar it, it, kind of like, oh, here's the other side of doing things. I think that I would agree. I don't think he did it because I don't think he joined the Church of England because he was a coward. I don't think he did it because he felt pressured. I think he genuinely thought, hey, it's not a compromise. I, I still get to preach Christ crucified. This will allow me to minister to many people. And the thing was, he did minister to many people. He brought a lot of people to saving faith in Ireland. He was very effective. I just think that he chose it, it kind of really showed maybe shows you there there can be good guys on both sides of a debate here it can be a really tough debate and there can still i think john bunyan is awesome for preaching christ and preaching from his jail cell and never giving up but i also think ezekiel had a really powerful impact on the ministry of people that i don't think he would have been able to do it if he if he'd been in a jail cell like john bunyan you, you know what i mean like both of them mm-hmm. were fine were doing what they thought was right but i will say that it seems to have taken his toll on Ezekiel Hopkins and trying to be that submissive, trying to do the right thing, it definitely hurt him. I, that doesn't mean it's wrong. You know, there's a really Charles Spurgeon mm-hmm. also did the right thing and I think died earlier in a sense because of it. It said it wore him out fighting the downgrade controversy. It could be that that's what Ezekiel Hopkins went through. And also, we think of England and Ireland as like similar places maybe in your head today, but to an English minister living in Ireland, that's basically going to a foreign mission field. I mean, like at that time, a foreign mission field that really, really doesn't want you. And so that must have been really exhausting too. So how much of that was just wiping them out, I think was probably hard. So I got to say, it was, it, I feel bad for him, I think, but I think his heart mm. was good. And I think that I don't know that I would have done it the same way, but he makes a good case that you can be a good follower of Christ and on the other side, if that makes sense. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, we're about to listen to a sermon by him. Uh, it's called Blessed Are Those Who Die in the Lord. And it was actually a funeral sermon. We We have funeral sermons on here from time to time. I actually, they're some of my favorite. They're some of my favorite sermons that we see are uh, are sermons that are preached as as people are saying goodbye to a certain individual. Revelation fourteen thirteen. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, "Right, blessed are the dead." who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Lord, they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Nature has shown us such horrible and dreadful images of death and represented the image of death as so weak and ghastly that nothing is more certain than we must all die, yet nothing is more difficult than to persuade men to die willingly. The philosophers have ransacked the whole bank of reason and have put into our hands all weapons for when we encounter this king of terrors. Yet despite their great preparations, instead of diminishing its dread, they have made it appear even more frightening, and in spite of whatever elegant arguments reason can produce, they are rather better for libraries than for use in our last moments. There is not anything in the sage philosophers for the contempt of death which they claim to offer the world, or if rationally examined, their arguments will prove no solid ground 
of peace in a dying hour. All that is meant by them is rather about the necessity of dying or the freedom it provides for the care and trouble of this life. Or lastly, the future of the hope of the future reward. Now, what good does it do to tell us that death is the common fate for us all, and that every material being has those fatal principles in it, which will certainly work its disillusion? Oh, what comfort is this? The inevitableness of the thing that is exactly what renders it so terrible that the freedom which it gives us from the cares and troubles of this life is like the change of going from a fever into a coma. It brings such a gloomy quietness, and although there is no sense of torment, neither is the ease. And when they speak of a future reward, it is dry or simple or sordid in comparison to that solid joy which God has promised to us in his word. Yet, could reason alone make our right to it certain and evident? It would be a strong support against the fear of death. It would be a sovereign antidote against its poisonous sting. But reason has prepared plates of punishment as well as bliss. And besides, the conscience of all men have discovered to them that guilt, of which their philosophy can never discover a satisfying explanation. And so instead of arming themselves against the fear of death, reason redoubles its terrors by proving us transgressors of the law of nature. You see, then, that the best support which reason can give is not death-proof. The last encounter that all must maintain against that last enemy is too rough and noisy for such arguments as these to make it any good. Men's clever words are like flashy fencers in the face of a real battle. Their clever tricks will quickly fade in the intensity of the war. Indeed, that which can make men meet death with undaunted boldness must be something more firm than reason. The human emotion made of rashness or human boldness, and yet something above reason, like a divine grace and revelation. Look at our blessed apostle. Seeing the calamities and persecutions and martyrdoms which befell the church, he saw that it was planted by the blood of Christ, so it was, will be increased by the blood of his own members, that he might encourage them with unshakable resolution to encounter with their many deaths. He fetched not his arguments from the faint and gloomy discourse of reason, but the, from the infallible testimony of divine revelation. I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. But this can be challenged by all, and so make a blessing as universal as mortality. The apostle enters a caveat against most of the world and limits this blessing to them that those who die in the Lord, that is, either to those who die for the Lord, and so the phrase may impart suffering, martyrdom for the name and profession of Christ, and to wade through their own blood to that of heaven which the Lord has opened to them by his. Or else they who die in the true faith of Christ, united to him as members of his body. And if we consider the terrors of the natural death, how much more of the terrors of martyrdom we see it as a blessing to have it spoken under such a mournful state, confirmed to us by the testimony of the heavenly voice. Think of the severe preparations of dying and lavish diseases, the tossings, the agony of the spirits, the ancestral groans, and the echoing back again from the weeping friends. 
the quivering of limbs, the distorted eyes, the fallen jaw, the torments of the soul, and the working of itself from the earth, oppressing it, and darting itself from under the body which it is fastened to the earth. Think of it is, after so many disorders of the soul, engaging themselves, taken from the dearest companion, the heavenly part left by death as a spectacle to its dearest relations, and to be by them delivered up as prey to the stink of worms and rottenness. Would anyone believe that such a state as this would be blessed without a voice from heaven assuring us of it? Those that God highly honors, every limb of those body is a scene of a tragedy, upon whom the enraged persecutors have made an experiment of their newfound cruelties, when it laid all mangled and withered in its own gore, under the most exquisite torments that men could entail. Oh, would you think them as blessed? But, just as their sufferings were beyond what human nature could bear, so also was their support from those strong consolations of God beyond the apprehensions of human reason. This blessing of theirs is branched out in two parts. First, rest from their labors. Secondly, their works do follow them. To begin with the first, their rest from their labors. They rest from the turmoils and vexations of this life. This life is nothing but a huddle of busyness and a swarm of employments, which life has more of a sting than the honey in it. If we are rich in the world, this makes us spread our nets wider and stand an easier target for trouble. If we are only a degree in the world, it only satisfies our interest and gives us every cross and affliction and advantage to wound us more. If we are plain and low, it exposes us to the contempt and injury from others. So it engages us to rescue ourselves from the pressures and powers, and by our sweat and pains we lose the comforts of life only to gain the conveniences of it. Even those petty and considerable enjoyments, which are but for the bare sustainment of life, cause us to care and trouble such aching hearts and weary heads that they turn our breads into stones and our fish into scorpions. If we have such business in this world, our calling becomes a temptation and a burden to us. But if we have none, we become, our, we become burdens to ourselves and others. God has written vexation upon every condition. If providence creates no trouble for us, our own folly will. We like Spiders spend our time and care to weave a web out of our own desires, and we spend more to get a prey than prey when taken will ever repay us. If any flaw is in our design, if any cross that intervenes does break our plans, then they become vexed and frustrated for us. So has man made himself a drudge to that over which God has made him a lord. The sweat of Adam's brow streams among us, and the curse with it. And though we toil in this world, yet it brings nothing but thorns and briars, which pierce us through the many sorrows. But death will shortly lay us abed in our graves, where, as Job speaks, the weary are at rest. Job 3.17 says, All our cares and sorrows and troubles will vanish as soon as our heads touch that pillow. There is no work, no plans, in the grave where you are going. That is a deep sleep in sweet retirement where we will have nothing of the afflictions nor troubles of this life to interrupt us. And the soul 
being free from the four trappings here in the passage of heaven, shakes off from its wings that mire and dirt with which it is clogged here among many earthly things and associates itself with the whole ring of angels, patriarchs, saints, and spirits of just men made perfect, and there it keeps an eternal festival. They rest from all the sorrows and sufferings of this life. What is our life but a bubble? Our sighs are the air, and our tears the water that makes it. The first possession which we take care of the world is by crying, and there is nothing which we hold with more certainty than our grief. Tears are an inheritance of our eyes. Either our sufferings or our sins call for them, and nothing can dry them up but the dust of the grave. Sometimes we lose our dear friends and relations and tribute, which we owe to their memories, must be paid down by tears. Sometimes their ungodly practices torments us, which by the debatteries they hurry by their own interest in our hopes. Sometimes compassion to other men's sufferings call for our sorrow, as if we didn't have enough grief of our own, but we go back to others to feel even more. Our many diseases waste us, and our grinding pains break us, and maybe they could be tolerable, but the hurry of that death which we put on end to our miseries. So we will not be concerned ourselves by the groaning for the loss of our dear friends, and we won't cry over the evil discourses or calamities of others. And it won't concern us nothing, then, what stinking breath blasts our good name, nor what unworthy foot treads upon our grave. Here a little pain touches us. In death the whole limbs sometimes fall down and crumble without disturbing that quiet rest which burdens all the sorrows of this life in a profound oblivion, and our souls ascend to that place by perfect joy where neither soul nor suffering dare yet appear. They will get to rest from their labors which a contempt and sinful heart has put them to, and this was what makes such a blessed rest where our corruption will, all at once, cease to act and cease to be. The only thing that makes God's commands and services so difficult and grievous is the remainder of sin which still cleaves to us, which both deadens our hearts to that is good and makes us desire not to do it. But death will shortly give us rest from these feelings. We will rest from these labors, which we often do with heavy and dull heart. When we are followers of God, we stand in need of such much awakening grace to touch and excite these lumps of lead that lie in our chests. We are continually tugging at our hearts, pushing them a little further to raise them up a little higher towards heaven, and it is a great discouragement of our lives that we find these hearts of ours so heartless and listless to which is holy and spiritual, but it will not be long before we rest from this labor. We are now like birds with heavy bodies which are too overweight to use their wings, for they could not soar towards heaven, but run fluttering up and down upon the surface of the earth. Yet these earthly weights will soon fall off. We will be all wings, free from that dullness, distraction, and weariness, which now afflict us when our feelings will always be perfect. Always burning and not wasting, every motion of our souls will naturally go to God as quickly as lightning, and yet as consistent as the sunbeams. You who are often beaten by the weakest Christian here will there be able to keep pace with angels themselves. We rest from the labors which we take with an avoiding and adversary heart. There is that reluctancy in the carnal part of us which 
what is holy and spiritual. And so we cannot bring ourselves to the performance of duty, which is much grief and conflict. The flesh wars against spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And when God calls for spiritual thoughts and holy afflictions, the corruption of our fleshly hearts send up work, vain labors. And these corrupt and infected with the good we do, and all this makes the work toilsome. But it will not be long, and it is all removed. And when, though we are now under a sad necessity of sinning, then we'll be under the blessed necessity of serving God, and we'll find no more trouble when we do these actions, when we are now cannot do with corruptible thoughts. It is that rest which we will shortly enjoy from the turmoils and vexations of this life, a rest from the sorrows and sufferings of this life, a rest from the labors and corruption of heart that puts us to. Second point. Now that this rest might seem only as a mere negative thing, a mere freedom from pain and labor, which no different from mere beast enjoys when it dies, to highlight this blessing, my texts add, their works will follow them. First, we must look at what works follow them. They follow them to heaven and are performed by them in glory. The same works end in heaven and enter into heaven with them. And as they were performed here weakly and imperfectly, so they are performed with the most absolute perfection. Therefore, whatever has been spoken of this rest must not be understood as if the glorified saints and angels were inactive, as if they enjoyed in heaven as long as a vacation to lay down their rest upon the flowery banks of this pleasant shadowy groves, and without fear and care, laughed away into eternity. No, no, their rest is active. They are continually blessing and praising God and ascribing honor and glory to Him who sits upon the throne and to the glory for, to the Lamb forever and ever, continually beholding and admiring God. They continually rejoice in Him and in one another's mutual happiness. That is the work of heaven, which never grows toilsome or grievous to them. Also, their works will follow them means the reward of their works. That is so great that neither eye has seen nor ear has heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man to fully understand what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. If Paul were now to preach to you, to encourage you against the fear of death, from the consideration of the infinite glory and reward which are laid up for you after death, then possibly you would expect that he, who has experienced visions in heaven, should at his return make some description of the place, describing to you what riches and glory of that place was. And yet, when he purposefully relates his voyage to the other world, he tells us no more than this, that he was caught up into paradise and he heard things unutterable, which are not lawful for man to utter. 2 Corinthians 12, 4 to the 11th verse. It is so great that it cannot be fully known until it's been fully enjoyed. The scripture seems to labor for expressions to show us the greatness of it. It is called to remain rest in an accessible light, fresh and overflowing pleasures, an incorruptible inheritance, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, this unspeakable happiness does chiefly consist of a few things. First, in the immediate vision and fullness of God, the soul's chief and most satisfying good. God is to us the springhead of our mercies and comforts, 
but we lie below at the edge of the spring and drawing refreshments from him only through the pipes of providences and commands and to live upon second-hand enjoyments of him. But in heaven, we will lie close to the foundation itself. We will drink in divine communications as they flow immediately from God without having them deadened and flattened in the process. Now we behold God through the glass darkly. In heaven, we see him face to face and know him as we are known. And if it causes us such joy in us, when God sometimes darts in but hath a glance of his eye upon the soul, then, oh, what a joy will be able to contain itself when we are able to constantly fix our eyes upon him. That face we can see even the most gracious angels, conscious of their own unworthiness, cover up and veil their own faces in his presence. Now when God gives us some glorious discoveries of him, we are ready to faint and melt under them. Imagine then, in heaven, when we will lie under the glorious rays of the deity, beating upon us so fully, that the beautiful vision which heaven of heavens and that glory which is the sight of which the angels are satisfied, where God has given us a clearer eye than that of faith, will forever present be with us in a nearer way than that of comfort. Secondly, the happiness of heaven consists in society which the saints will commune forever. Their holy angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. Here on earth, the angels are given for our protection, but in heaven, for our companions. And though we are the adopted, and they are the natural children of God, great family, yet they will rejoice with us that we who are strangers are taken to be their heirs with them of the estate which the rebellious brethren are disinherited. As for the glorified saints, what numerous troops of apostles and prophets and holy martyrs will we converse with, and possibly we will know them all by name, and the disciples at the transfiguration of Christ knew Moses and Elijah, perhaps it will be by revelation, and so it might be in heaven. Third, the happiness of heaven consists in work, in which we will be employed there for eternity. Their works will follow them, and they will follow them as part of their, as part of their reward. Now on earth we look upon works of holiness as a task and burden. Yet in heaven we will look upon them as our joy. In heaven it will be as natural to us to do the will of God as it is the most wicked sinner to disobey him. And the quality of the work that we will do there will fill us with infinite delight. Here on earth, God calls a Christian to sever duties of mortification and self-denial, taking up the cross. But the works of heaven are all smooth, consisting only in these two things, love and the expression of love and praise. This is the work of heaven. Here an angel sings to a saint, and there a saint to an angel. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sits upon the throne and that the Lamb forever and ever, all joining in one common choir, and heavenly echoing, and singing alleluias to eternity. Fourth, the saints' happiness consists in that additional glory which will forever rest upon their bodies, for their bodies will be raised and interned, entire and perfect body. Every member will become whatever is most serviceable to those use of the soul and will give each the best ability to glorify God. And though many of them lose their possessions here on earth, yet they still retain their places. 
here we will be discharged from the duties of life, and our bodies will be discharged from the troublesome offices, and yet what we did here does not cease to be important. Though they are discharged from their offices, yet they are remembered for the judge's sentence, and they will be free from all the consequences of sin and from all the forerunners of death, to which here they are victims. All outward decays and aches and weaknesses, free from pain and diseases, corruptions and moods. Our work has done in corruption, but rewards are raised in corruption. They are performed in weakness, but they are raised in power. They are worked in dishonor and are raised in glory. 1 Corinthians 15 shows us this, that therefore, as Tertullian says, if God should not raise men entirely, then he should not raise them up from the dead. For if any part is not raised, we are as that part still dead. And therefore God raises them up entirely and fully from those decaying to which we are here subject to. The glory of the body consists chiefly in spirituality. Not that our bodies are charged into spiritual substance, but they will be endowed with three spiritual qualities. First, The bodies of the saints in heaven will shine as a bright and dazzling light. They will shine as brightness of heaven and as the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12.3 And this, it is thought, will proceed from their approximation to God and immediately communion with him, just as Moses' face shone by conversing with God and the Israelites were dazzled. They were not behold him, and partly this will be from the radiance of the soul's glory, which is so great, will then diffuse and spill itself out of the body. A cheerful heart will makes a cheerful conscience, and truly a glorious soul will put a soul, put a glory upon the body itself. Secondly, the body will be endowed with eternity. It will not be subject to decays within or injuries outside. It will not stand any need for the supports of rest and sleep and food which they are sustained in this life by. Thirdly, they will be endowed with glorious agility, moving back and forth as the will commands without any difficulty or weariness. Possibly, they will be able to keep pace with the angels themselves in their motion, and this agility is going to be necessary in such a spacious place as heaven. Now, We did not even have time to discuss the control of our affections or the perfect operation of our senses or the sight of the body of Jesus Christ, which may be boldly approached and with Thomas put our hands in the prints of the nails and our fingers in his side. By all this, we may conclude that our souls cannot begin to imagine what our bodies will be like in heaven. So I have given you, as it were, a map of heavenly promised land But as it is with other maps, so it is here. Everything is represented much less and far shorter of what it is in reality. But it will make no mistake when it comes to heaven. We will find things far greater and better than we are described. To the application. The first use, as if they were who die in the Lord, have such an ample reward to follow them. This should first encourage them to live a holy life. Do you think those of you who spend your time in pointless pursuits and constant sinful pleasures in this world, you can have anything other than a catastrophe? What works will you have to follow you, and such as it will drag you down into your torments? Do you think then that a parting prayer, 
a slight, Lord, have mercy, when you are going out of this world will be judged enough to break through the numbers crowded of your sins and allow your souls, souls into the everlasting blessedness? Believe this. Just as it had been first aim, so it will be your final aim. Do not endanger your precious and immortal souls upon the treacherous resolutions of a deathbed confession. And do not think that a charitable inheritance will erase for God a sinful life. The way to heaven will be so obstructed by your former guilt that those good works done by death cannot follow you. A man surrenders his soul with confidence into the hands of God when he can reflect upon the well-spent life and appeal to the God of Hezekiah. Remember, O Lord, what I have walked before you in truth and sincerity and done what is righteous in your sight. All other things will be but miserable comforts in a dying hour and will then vanish and disappear. A rich man's bags will not follow him to the judgment seat to bribe the impartial judge, nor a nice man's good reputation give him a more favorable audience to the last judgment, nor will the orator's great elegance then follow him to cover over a bad case before God. For he will certainly misspeak on that day of trial if he has not made certain for himself to do a more powerful advocate to plead for him. These things will leave the poor soul into this greatest agony and despair, and riches and learning and all that is idolized by the world will prove nothing but witnesses of our guilt and condemnation. Second use, that this may comfort us against the death of our friends, who we know live pious and righteously, desiring to please God in all things, and testifying the truth and soundness of their faith in Christ by their good works. If such men are not blessed, then God created all mankind to die accursed. But if they are blessed, and blessed with eternal rest and an inconceivable reward, what then are those sad hearts and wet eyes? What do these tears show but that you think them miserable, and that you yourselves are miserable, for their state is so infinitely glorious that they are preferred to be kings and favored of the king of kings, where they flow in pleasures and eternal raptures, they which forever enjoy now. And if you were interested in their welfare, it would change your affections of grief and sorrow for them into sweet exultation and admiration at their own joy and triumph. Do you think after they have tasted those rivers of pleasure at the right hand of God, that they would be content to return to you again, or that God should condemn them to live longer in this world? In this life, you've showed your love to them by sweet harmony of your feelings with theirs, mourning when they mourned and rejoicing when they rejoiced. What a break of friendship it is for you to weep now when they sing and shout for joy, and to have their your eyes blubbered with tears when God has wiped away all the tears from theirs. It is your own loss which you lament, because they are taken from you, the one who you would willingly have died and given up yourselves to the death for. But this is the effect of self-love and shows that you are more concerned to your own contentment than in their glory. And what you might enjoy from yourselves, you would keep them from their near and intimate enjoyment from God? Can you not for a time live with their absence that they may not have the advantage of paradise? And can you substitute the comfort you had by their presence with the comfort which you have in their assurance of their happiness? 
what his Savior says to his disciple. John 14, 28, may I say to you, if you love them, you will rejoice because they have gone to the Father, and this separation by their absence of theirs is but for a short time. You must tread these paths of their example and follow their track, and as their works went before them to heaven, so yours will follow you. And when you get to heaven, you will live without fear of another separation. You will be satisfied in the enjoyment of another and all the enjoyment of God. I have now finished my text, and I would finish my discourse too, that I would wrong such the gentleman whose funeral rites we are now celebrate, should I skip over those virtues with God endowed him. And I should wrong you too in the withholding such an excitement pattern for you to imitate. I am without a doubt his conversions among you with moderation, gravely, and prudence. These were so natural to him in all the passages of his life that they were imprinted on you so deeply as to redeem his name from being forgotten and made it precious to you. In his younger years, his employment called him to the seas, and out there the blessing of God followed him. He did not exchange his principles nor barter away his good education, but returned with his mind untainted to his friends and improved even to their joy and his own profit. He saw himself as only a steward of that estate which God blessed him to live in. His spiritual eyes and hands sought out necessities of others so that he could relieve them. Those times he helped others, he managed it with careful prudence and abundance. The psalmist gives us the character of such a good man. Psalm 112.5 He guides his affairs with discretion. He was such a discreet man who laid his business in such an order and method that though his work was vast and heavy, yet he never stretched himself too thin. And as for his duties at home, where the chief glory of a Christian appears, these he performed with such tenderness, whether he was acting as a husband or a father, indeed the whole course of his life was tempered with such sweetness, meekness, humility, and courtesy, as being ready to do good at any, and having nothing of bitterness, but a winning disposition. His piety towards God, which is the crown of all other excellence, shone out with a mutual awe and reverence. It was clear that this possessed his heart with an affection, seriousness, becoming of all sense of God's omniscience and omnipresence, making it his design in all things to please God. His last sickness he underwent with patient worthy of a Christian. By submission to the hand of God, he displayed evidence of the acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over all things, that God might do with him what he pleased, and yet trusted in his goodness, that he knew he would do with him what was best for him. Desirous he was, if the Lord saw good, to live longer, and he prayed, if possible, that the bitter cup might pass from him, and certainly the strongest grace and clearest assurance of faith does not oblige any to destroy these natural desires. Paul himself, who Second Corinthians 5.4 was caught up into paradise and had to discover of the heavenly joy, yet was reluctant to be stripped out of the body, though he was sure to be clothed immediately with the robes of life and glory. When his disease and sickness increased upon him, his chief care was to look, search, and examine his evidence for heaven, which after some scrutiny and doubt, was produced, he at last acquired to his own unspeakable comfort 
and the satisfaction of his acquaintances a tranquil joy, and then resigned up his spirit into the hands of the Lord his Maker. He now rests from his labors, and that eternal rest which God has promised to all who wait for his appearing. Could you imagine listening to that at a funeral? Could you imagine somebody talking the way Ezekiel Hopkins? I mean, for the first half of the sermon, at least like two thirds of the sermon, you wouldn't even know it was a funeral sermon. It is the way he's just like, why are you like, why would you be sad when someone dies? How selfish can you be? He's going to be with Christ. You said you were, he was your friend. You would do anything for him, but you won't let him be with Christ. That's how you feel. I, it's just, it's an intense sermon, but it does challenge you to thinking like, you know, hey, when my my loved ones pass on, if they're in Christ, should I be as sad as I am or should I be happy for them? It's a tough challenge. Of course, for human, it's impossible not to feel some sorrow for our friends that pass on. But the way Ezekiel Hopkins challenges us really shows us that he believed in the afterlife and that he believed that that is where we were heading. I thought this was a great funeral sermon. Far, I I would hope that somebody could preach a funeral sermon like that for me when I pass away. I don't think I'm as good as the guy Ezekiel Hopkins was talking about, but that's certainly the goal. If your goal is how are people going to remember me at my funeral, I hope that this kind of sermon could be preached over me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Nathan Pabarkis. He is a youth minister from Kabul Christian Church in Southern Missouri. He graduated with his master's in church history from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Nathan enjoys spending time with his wife and his three kids playing disc golf and talking church history. Most importantly, he loves Jesus. A disc golf guy, Troy. My dad's a big disc golfer. Those people are out there. If you are listening to this episode and you enjoyed it, we ask that you share it. Tell your friends, hey, Revive Thoughts is back. And uh, let them know that we are out there putting out new episodes again. And this was a good sermon. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully it was challenging to you. And if you share it online, make sure to tag us so maybe that we can read your comments next time on the show. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.